Banen. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. Yo, 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 what's going on? And welcome to another podcast episode of Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club featured in TV and film. I am your host, Monis Rose, and today our fictional bar, if you will, is called Cheers. It is prominently featured in the TV show called Cheers. Now we are bringing on someone who knows cheers more than any other person i know have met have heard of his name is pete d'alessandro now why is pete d'alessandro on the podcast well i'll tell you he actually runs the best screenwriting podcast that ever existed it's called right on by final draft that's right he has interviewed the likes of jim jeffries all the way up to the most current writer of the brilliant toy story 4 so he knows the craft he knows how to interview and he has a much much better uh, voice than me than i i forget is it me or i when i use him at the end of a sentence anyway i digress he also is a product designer of final draft so for all of those screenwriters out there you have probably toyed around with played with even typed with his actual products he discusses them as well as pete also hosts a side project called the pete d'alessandro podcast where he just interviews different pete d'alessandros from all over the world one of them being i believe a front office guy for the orlando magic so if you are an orlando magic fan um this might uh, not be the podcast for you, but if you just want to hear another Pete D'Alessandro talk, please listen up because we just love all kinds of listeners, no matter uh, if you are a sports fan, TV fan, screenwriting fan or not. We we accept all over here at the Restaurant Fiction Podcast. All right. Well, anyway, without further ado, here is the review of Cheers and our interview with Pete D'Alessandro. Enjoy. Boston is pretty much a drinking town. I mean, any pretty much town in America is a drinking town. But Boston, of course, is all about the suds. I mean, it's all about the brouhaha's. I mean, it's been a drinking town. It's been a drinking town since pretty much Boston was Boston. Well, anyway, there's an old bar. It's not the oldest, but it is an old bar, and it's called Cheers. It's from 1895. The people behind Restaurant Fiction, actually, Cheers was their first bar that they ever reviewed. And what did they say? They said that this bar was pretty much plain as Jane. It really just blended in with the marketplace. It welcomed the smell and the sniff of the dirty Charles River. What was really good about Cheers, especially back then, and even today, but especially in 1895, anyone can come. That it can be the really aristocratic, the really highfalutin, and then just the regular schlub. As long as you know how to pay for a pint, that's pretty much it. What really, really stand out is they have a unusual code of conduct. you got to have some wit. And your wit 
needs to only last about 30 minutes because after that, you're going to get a little bit bored. And then you just move on to another conversation. But that's about it. I mean, you don't want to just drown your sorrows. You want to, like, have a little clever, you know, a little cleverness about you. And I don't know if that's the actual person or if that's just the vibe Cheers gives because it really makes a real safe stronghold amongst all the hubbub happening outside. But anyway, Pete, what'd you think? <laughs> Lovely. I think uh, Cheers is just one of the most iconic bars on TV ever. Uh, the most iconic restaurants we've ever seen created the image of what a bar is supposed to look like. As we saw commercials for Cheers. Even if you didn't watch Cheers, you were aware of Cheers in the 80s. And it just colored the way you were supposed to see a bar. Like That's what a bar looks like because of Cheers. I think there was a TGI Fridays in Australia that I used to go to uh, somewhere around Melbourne or, or South Yara or something that looked an awful lot like Cheers. And I may be just misremembering, but I remember thinking at the time, this looks like Cheers in here for some reason. What is the funniest or the weirdest or maybe craziest bar experience you've ever had? I lived in New York for a little while. I did a summer semester uh, at NYU. I did a class, not really a semester. I did a class uh, while I was doing an internship at NYU. I did the class because I could then qualify for NYU student housing, which is about 1% as expensive as any other housing in New York. Uh, so even to pay for the class saved me money, if you can believe that. What I was working on for that class was production design, and I had a story, and that story revolved around a bar. So I had to, I was 20, uh, so I had to get a fake ID and run around New York researching bars so that I could figure out you know, how to do this. And you know, I don't think my professor was totally aware of that, uh, but I had a lot of bars. Do you don't know how much research I got done, but I had a thorough understanding of what it was like to buy a lot of drinks at those bars. Fake IDs back then, this was 2000. No one cared. Like You have something that shows your name and a birthday, great. What is it? It's just a cardboard glued piece. Of, I mean, that was terrible. Uh, no one cares. I'm just like, yep, good enough. You got a, you got an idea. I didn't have Superbad at the time to uh, be a role model for me, unfortunately. But McLovin would have been great. What does Cheers say about the characters? And also, what does what the characters drink say about them as well? Yeah, so the you know the two big bar flies everybody knows are Norm and Cliff, uh, Cliff Clave and uh, Norm Peterson, and they're you know big beer drinkers. So they're going to sit there all night and you know beer after beer after beer, mostly light beers, like you know, probably the American domestic light beers. That's who those guys are. They sit and they relax and they drink a cold beer. Norm, in one episode explains like you know I it's it's cold out there. Uh, I want a cold beer. I think it's Diane says, why? Like, why would you do that? And Cliff explains, well, actually, you know, the cold on the inside of your body makes the cold on the outside of your body feel less cold. She's like, well, then how does a cold beer cool you off when it's hot? He's like, well, it's cold. So beer basically does whatever you want. Whatever you need, beer is the, is the answer for it. And that's how those guys view life. And I think that is uh, just quintessentially what those barflies are. Cheers. I think they kind of stand for everybody else. Whereas there's this wonderful sort of I don't know, I'm, maybe this wasn't even intentional, but Boston to baseball in the 80s, you know, this was still before they ever came back and won a championship. They were, you know, they were cursed in baseball. But Sam Malone tried baseball and also failed. You know, he had this drinking problem and he, he was washed out of baseball, even though he had been this great player. So there's sort of this analog of like how baseball was just sort of out of reach for both Boston and for Sam. Uh, and I always thought that was really sort of a nice fit. Could have been football. Could have been you know. Could have been so many other things that Sam washed up of. Uh, it could have been a singer. And he was a pitcher, which is sort of 
I'm not sure if it's always a leader position, but I think you know there's something in that way. So he becomes this leader uh, of the gang at the bar. And I think Diane was obviously you know, sort of the fish out of water to really balance out the show. Everybody else belongs there. She does not. And she really is stretching herself to do this bizarre thing that she's she's totally out of her element to do. I think the significance of it is like, what does it mean to different people? And I think the, the one thing that cheers really, you know, it does mean everything to everybody. You know, Diane has this new hope here. Uh, Coach, this is, you know, this is sort of where he lives. Sam, this is what's left of a dream for him. Would you go to cheers? Hell yes, I would go to cheers if I had the chance. I would definitely sit at the bar, get a couple beers. Do you want to talk about stupid bar trivia? Then yeah, you want to sit next to Cliff. Is it going to be fun? Hell yeah. Is it going to be fun all, all the time? No, probably not. Uh, so you go. I don't know if I would be a regular. The people who frequent chairs are very good functioning alcoholics, in a way. There's almost a decorum, almost like a decency. Yeah, there is. There's a decency. There's a there's a standard of living at Cheers. Um, you know, the, the stuff is polished. Stuff is clean. Uh, the lights are, are, you know, it's bright lighting. You never see, though, someone really use the bathroom, though, do you? <laughs> Nobody breaks that seal till the 22 minutes is over. What is it about drinking and bars that mesh so well with comedy? There's a screenwriting element here, but there's also, I think, a stage direction blocking and directing question here. And acting. It's great to have some business in front of you when you're having a conversation. So you're not just staring at each other. You're not two people standing in front of each other going like, what do I do with my hands? Because you have some business in front of you. You're having a drink. So that lends itself well to actual, to more dialogue than other situations might. You can squeeze more dialogue in a scene, for instance. Cheers is perfect. Like You can sit there and t- drink two beers, and you don't need much else besides dialogue. How much action is there in Cheers? And I think that is really what alcohol and food buy you. And food locks you down a little bit more. So I can walk over you to you at the bar and start a quick conversation and make a comment and leave. It's casual. I don't I just walk up next to you and order another beer. Casual. So I can get a comment in. Cheers always did that really well. Um, where somebody will walk up and order, yeah, let's have a beer. Oh, yeah, yeah, by the way, your joke. And then walk away. That doesn't happen when you're sitting at a table at a restaurant. So that same dynamic isn't there. And you can get a bit more of a sort of a joke delivery device out of having that common space that isn't so private. Uh, it isn't so formal. When you're sitting at a table, how many people walk over to you and say something? I mean, that's rare. When you're standing at a bar, that's sort of the point. When you write or when you read others' work, uh, what are those some bar tropes to stick away from? I think one is cheers. <laughs> that's a trope to stick away. It's been done. It's been perfected. Don't iterate into that same, don't step into that same bar, the same area. You know, the, one of the other tropes, that it, it does sort of bother me a little bit now, and it wasn't. It wasn't until recently, but I think we've just seen it so much, or maybe I've seen it so much. The post-work, let's go out for drinks kind of bar, like we're all hanging out. And I'm not saying it's necessarily lazy. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. But can you think of something better for your story, for your characters that, you know, is there somewhere else to get drinks? Is there something else to do after work where your characters can kind of hang out and unwind? Shifting more into your writing, how many rewrites do you do on any given project? Anywhere between zero and a billion. I'm working on a feature now. I've done... I don't know how many rewrites on it. I'm probably halfway through the number of rewrites I'll ever do for this thing. It's got to be 30. I wrote a spec episode once for one of the fellowships um, a year or two ago. And I plotted it out for about a week, kind of like at night. I'd come home, do like an hour here and there, and chip away about five days. And then I sat down Saturday morning, not realizing the deadline was like the next night. So I sat down like noon on Saturday I was like, man, I'm making really good pace. And I look up and it's like 6.30. And I look up and it's 12.30 and I'm done. 
and I did zero rewrites on that. The first draft in 12 hours, and it's one of the best things I've ever written. So for me, maybe rewriting is a bad thing, but uh, I don't know. I don't think that's the norm. I just think that happened to be a lightning striking. So you can't tell all writers out there how to just do one draft. I wish I could communicate how to do that, but I did not intend not to rewrite. I mean, I didn't have time to, before that particular deadline, but I would still come back to that if I wanted to. That I want to give it to a bunch of friends, and they all read it, and they said they loved it. And I'm like, well, I don't usually get that from my friends, but, you know, they are my friends. I mean, they're, maybe they're being kind. But no one really had any notes. And then gave it to a couple uh, more critical writer friends uh, and said, like, all right, you know, you can no, no notes came back. Like, that one moment where everyone's like, okay, this is, this is done. Like, this is how this should be. You don't need to change anything. Like, that never happens. That's not even a fantasy. That's so silly. Uh, and that was the one. I had no intention of not rewriting, but just I felt good with it. What well, was it a spec on? Or uh, that was a Rick and Morty. How has your writing changed throughout the years? I thought I was outlining. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just, I wasn't very critical in my outlines. I would just kind of put down my first thoughts, and then I would go and take those first thoughts and turn them into a script, which isn't really what you'd be doing. And an outline, that's really the time to do all your editing and rewriting and, and figure things out and how to connect and change a lot before you're changing anything in the script. I heard a story from a, a writer. He's a showrunner. I think he ran White Collar for a while, and I don't remember what he went on to after that right now. Um, Joe Henderson. And I remember him telling a story one time about how he got into a fellowship and then it ended and he never got placed anywhere. So people kept helping him to, you know, like, all right, well, you know, if we write one more spec, maybe in the next month, get that, you know, maybe get that done and uh, get it out and maybe we'll get you placed. And he said he was just doing one a month because every month someone would say, do another one and we can probably get you on staff somewhere. And he said he did that for a year. So it was like 12 specs in a year, like one a month. And he said that was the time like he became a really great writer. And it was just, it stuck with me. So thanks, Joe, if you're listening. But I decided at one point, like, I'm going to try doing something fast. Final Draft at the time was developing an iPhone app um, to write on your iPhone. And I was like, it's a pretty good opportunity for me to test this. I was working on that. So we had a basic concept and I was, you know, it wasn't even beta yet. It was really an alpha, but you could write you could sit there and you could type and you could write. So I did. But I started doing one a month, one pilot a month or one something a month. Didn't all work and I was okay with that. Like, a, you know, October. Uh, this one sucks. I'm, this is not going anywhere. And then, you know, some of the other ones wound up getting rewritten later, but some good stuff came out of it. That was sort of the opposite of outlining. So I went through that phase for maybe a year or two where it was like, I'm going to just crank stuff out and try to flex that intuitive muscle where I'm not analyzing and critically thinking. I'm just going to let my character speak and kind of go for discovery rather than process. And there's strength to that. I'm pretty type A. I'm pretty organized, pretty structured in my brain. Flexing that intuitive muscle made a lot of sense because you're kind of writing against your own strength. You're trying to lean on the part you're not great at and get better at that. So that was great. Now I do more and more outline and pre-writing than I've ever done. Kind of swung the other way, but you know, I knew that. I, I knew that was sort of a temporary phase. So the next project's going to be a novel, uh, big sci-fi. I've got to have 100 pages on it of notes and outlines and steps and tie-ins and setups and payoffs. Maybe it's 80 pages, if I'm exaggerating, but not by much. And just a gigantic document. And I'm turning that into chapters by chapter, but there's a lot of stuff there in order to reference and I have it and it's organized and I know like wait this character wouldn't really say this this way because look at their backstory look at the, you know look at the way they interacted with that other character at a chapter ago why are they going to go from this line to two chapters from now they're going to interact like that with it no that doesn't make sense so you have to have to change how you look at this character and you have all that and that's so important for me now do you ever um, implement your writing and your sci-fi uh, creativeness into your stand-up 
I don't know because a lot of sci-fi, what makes sci-fi different is you know, a couple things. One, you can explore a theme that you can't necessarily explore as easily in a uh, standard drama, you know, something uh, real life, real time. So that's one way sci-fi can inform stuff and, and, and taking a theme. The other way is really world building, world building, character building, and you inform those characters from that world. So that part doesn't necessarily lend all that well to a stand-up. Uh, but it still gives you a chance to think about things outside the box. You know, there's this great apocryphal story about, um, it was, was it Larry Page? Google, yeah. One of the ways he, he works is he looks at things and he's just like, well, why is that thing that way? So the example they always give is that he looks at a coffee cup and goes, why do they always have handles? Well, it's because the coffee's hot inside. You don't want to hold the hot part. And he's like, well, you could just have a double-layered, insulated coffee cup and you wouldn't need a handle. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But sci-fi is that. It's looking at things that are and asking, well, do they need to be that way? How could they be different? Would it be better? You know, what is different about those parts of your world? That forces you to look at some perspective. And I think that might inform my stand-up rather than go directly into it. It really helps you to step back and look at stuff you're taking for granted. That is stand-up comedy. Best bits are things that everyone has thought about and no one has thought of. So I have a way of expressing this one thing that you've seen and you've walked around forever, but you've never noticed this about it. You've never noticed that it works this way. And that's the funny part of it. And then we all laugh and go, yeah, you're right. That is, that is great. What I've got from that answer, you are observing. You're right. Because the characters, I mean, shouldn't be observers generally because you want them to be active. But we as creators and writers kind of do have to be sitting back and observing something and appreciating the nuance of it. What is an unusual or absurd habit or a absurd thing that you love? When I was about 15, I discovered that I, you know, I like to work out. And I was about 15 and I realized that I had... You know, been pretty good working out, like, you know, a couple times a week. And then two months would go by and I hadn't worked out at all. And I'm like, man, how did that? Oh, and then I'd work out for two months and then I'd stop. And I realized, like, that first day that you don't, if you don't have that first day that you forget to work out or don't work out, then you can't accidentally quit for two months or three years. So if you don't let that first day happen, you're all right. So when I was 15, I decided I was going to work out every other day, always take a day off in between. Uh, and I didn't miss a workout for like three years, like almost all of high school. And I fell asleep one night before I worked out, and that was kind of the end. I picked that back up in August of 2006, and I haven't missed a workout since. Working out is important to me because if I don't work out, then my day is lost. I just feel that way mentally. So what is your workout? Is it, is it more strength? Is it more classes? Is it more hiking? Kind of do all the above. I don't, I don't do yoga. I don't do Pilates. I do like to do the classes. I like to have some variety because I am doing it every other day and I haven't missed in 13 years. So yeah, I have to change it up a bit. Um, I did For a couple of years, I did a lot of boxing classes. That's a great way to get in shape. If you're really looking for something hard, there was a, a great place in North Hollywood for a while, an old retired boxer who just... This guy was like in his 50s, and I've never seen abs like his. No, I mean, man, what a, what a great guy. If you're trying to form a habit and you're building some variety into it, I think that makes it a lot easier to stomach. I went to a boxing uh, gym, and I wanted, of course, to throw a punch. And every time the trainer was like, footwork, always footwork, footwork. And then I kept on getting an attitude of like, I'm ready to throw. Like, teach me how to throw a punch. And he kept, he just like pushed me on my chest and all, he, and I fell down. It's like, 
the moment you fall, like, no, you're still working on your footwork. <laughs> and boxing. <laughs> you're still working on your feet. <laughs> that's right. That's great. Yeah, that's a good lesson. Uh, the thing they were always beating up us on was the keeping your hands in guard, and you just don't know. You know, at one point, this didn't happen often, but he actually made us go like 12 rounds, not fighting. Just keeping your goddamn hands up for three minutes at a time, you can't do it. No matter what kind of shape you're in, you can't believe how hard that is. Just keep your hands where they actually should be, not up, but where they actually should be as if you were fighting. Uh, it's that fundamental, like you said, your footwork. Like, what does that have to do with boxing? A lot. I mean, keeping your hands up, it's like, oh my God, like that extra inch, you know, right below your eyes. Uh, oh, I, I didn't know that was that much harder. And it is. So, I mean, I, to me, I, I, that comes back to writing habits and you know, how hard you're willing to work and how often you're willing to do it and how disciplined you can be about a habit. Some people don't need a writing habit to really be great writers. I don't know how anyone works that way. I have to put the time in and I have to do it on a regular basis. So it's not that different than physical exercise for me. And it all goes full circle, guys. Uh, you make it a system almost. Yeah, it is a discipline unto itself and you have to have, I hate to say machinery because it sounds exactly the opposite of creativity, but you have to have some kind of system, like you said, of how do you get your ass down in that seat often enough to do it. The iPhone, I don't use it as much as I used to at a point, but the iPhone app was just great because you could always get a couple minutes in. You always have, like, oh, I'm, wait, I'm in the elevator. You could write a line of dialogue in an elevator once in a while. You can. I'd line at the DMV for 45 minutes. Well, you can scroll through social media for 45 minutes and just waste 45 minutes of your life. You'll never get back. Or you can actually just write. Like you got a phone with a script in your pocket and you're already working on it. And it actually helps you keep immersed a little bit more. So it's always kind of fresh in your mind. If that's one of the things you value as a writer, some people like to let go. But that was great for me. I um, just always have access to my writing. You developed this app? Yeah, I did. I, I developed that for Final Draft, right? What advice do you have for a smart, driven, emerging writer? It's really easy to procrastinate forever. If you just don't do it today, it's always today. And you can really you can let that slip. And I certainly did. I didn't take it very seriously um, in my 20s. I didn't take... You know, my craft very seriously. Uh, and it wasn't until later I was like, wait, I have to be good at this. Like, I can't just kind of hope something happens. Like, I actually got to really work and make myself good. I think there are two traps you can get in. One is trying to get perfect. A showrunner uh, I'm friends with a few times, uh, Jonathan Groff. I will give a shout out to Jonathan Groff for some great advice. Perfect is the enemy of the good. So, if you're waiting for perfection, you can miss out on just doing something good. Uh, and you might never get perfect anyway. So you may wind up with something bad because you're trying to perfect it. The script you're not done is of zero value. You can use a pitch, but it better be a finished pitch. You can't use an unfinished anything to do much of anything in this town. Uh, so you need to get stuff done. The other trap is the opposite, where you can go the other way and try to get too much out and not get it good enough. So it's really a fine line. That's the art of writing, I think. People say writing is rewriting definitely is but that's like when do you stop rewriting but if you're working on one script for nine years i appreciate that you are still trying to make it great man in nine years you could have had you know you know 20 more samples done uh good ones you had, so at some point it is time to put something down and not get into that trap of perfection at the same time if you are writing one thing a month, don't expect them to be very good because mine weren't you can definitely earn that too so it's finding that line that's my advice and what advice should this smart-driven writer ignore? All of it. Uh, the, the harder part is like you can get so much advice, and, and it can it'll conflict. If you get enough advice, you'll find conflicting advice. You know, if you Google having a baby, everybody has an opinion, and you can find infinite conflicting advice that basically means 
all of it is kind of worthless. You can only find stuff that's relevant to you. And you don't know how to filter that stuff out until you get it. So which advice is valuable to you as a writer? What do you need to work on? What is it you're trying to improve? If you want to be great at it, make sure it's your world. So you're listening to all the podcasts, you're studying, you're reading tons of scripts. After that, I hate the advice that people hear. I hear it all the time. I always think it would go away once I get old enough, and it never goes away. Oh, you can't write we see on a script. You can't. We see that Monus has a knife behind his back. That's a pet peeve. Like People say you can't do that. Well, you can. You shouldn't do it all the time. We understand we're seeing something, but sometimes you need to differentiate. You should be clear in your writing. That's what's important. Well, you shouldn't use parentheticals. You're telling the actor how to act. Not important. That is, no actor thinks that. The actor's want to know what you're saying, just like anyone else who's reading a script. That stuff's important. So that sort of advice I really hate. Please ignore that. But to a point, someone out there is overusing voiceover. So that person does need to pay attention to the trope of, no, oh, you shouldn't use voiceover. Well, you can definitely use voiceover. Just don't use it all the time. Um, if, you, if you have the ability to turn it on and off as a writer, and if you don't, you need that advice. But again, that's all you know, specific to you and the stage you're at and what you need to learn. So the advice you should ignore is just about all of it, unfortunately, and you got to pick up the stuff that's relevant to you. How do you keep consistently creative? Keeping consistently creative without plateauing. Plateauing is a great word in exercising, making sure, you know, the, especially in weights, they talk about like, you know, if you get to a certain number of your, your curls or your bench or whatever and, and you plateau, you can't get any farther. You need to change things up. And I think the same thing applies to writing. To an extent, if you're plateauing in terms of your creativity, then yeah, you might need new perspective. That's one of the ways you can kind of challenge yourself and you can find like, what is it I'm not seeing? What is it I'm not doing? And step back and find that other perspective. What does this character see? What this new character I'm trying to develop, what would they see differently than everybody else in this, in this scene? When Diane walks in to Cheers, how does Cheers look to her? Because I bet it looks different than it does to Norm uh, or Sam or Coach. And I think that's the sort of stuff that can get you past a creative block. I mean, I hate to say writer's block, but it's just true. Uh, And then uh, for me, a lot of times I work harder. I just push harder on the thing that is blocking me. There's a bit of brute force there for sure. The other thing I learned was to make lists. That's how almost all my characters start out as lists. What do I not know about this person? Why do they wear the color glasses they wear? When they go home, do they keep their sneakers on? Some of that stuff matters, some of it doesn't. But if it comes from a backstory and then actually informs something, you might find getting past a hurdle that way. Just make a list of 25 terrible ideas. You'll come up with 10 right away. You can make those first 10 real easy. Uh, first 10 ideas, like, what, what is it with this character? Why are they different? And you can't come up with any more ideas. So your five or eight next ones, you just, you're just a struggle. And then some weird shit starts coming out. And then like those last three or four, you can really find something brilliant in there because you've exhausted everything that anyone else would ever think of. It really does force you to be creative on a one-by-one level. And I think that has saved me a lot of times in terms of stuck creativity. What are you drinking at Cheers? And even, I know there was not really food. Let's put food in the game. And what are you eating? I think I'm going to go with the classic stuff at Cheers. If I'm going to go to a bar like that, you know, a light domestic is the way to go. I probably drink a Miller Light, Coors Light. They don't really have food. I wouldn't bring something down from Melville's. I know I'm probably technically supposed to. I don't want to. Uh, I don't really want that food. I probably want a burger or wings when I'm there, or both. 
Pete, anything you want to add either with Final Draft? Final Draft Podcast, yeah, that's a weekly schedule with Right On. So every Tuesday, there's a new episode. One of the things about the podcast is I try to just ask questions myself that I myself, as a writer, want to know the answers to. Uh, So if you're just starting out, sometimes I probably will skip over stuff you might want to know. If you've never written a screenplay before, you don't know anything about Hollywood, you might be lagging behind for a few episodes because I I just try to jump in assuming the audience knows near as much as I do um, and dig in that way. And what about you have another podcast, right? The Pete, the Pete on Pete. <laughs> I do have another podcast, the Pete the Alessandro's show, uh, plural. There's a couple other semi-famous people, other famous people, not not that I'm famous, are also named Pete Alessandro. One of them, I think, is right now the assistant GM for Orlando Magic. So I used to get his emails once in a while, like, "Hey Pete, please look at my resume so I can be on your coaching staff." I'm like, "Man, I don't I don't know how to tell you, but I don't know how to go hold that dude." But but then there's another guy who uh, manages uh, managed Bernie Sanders' campaign. He's a big political operative, and he ran for Congress this last time uh, in 2018. So he and I, you know, connected on Twitter, and we decided it would be fun to just do this podcast, the PT Alessandro's show, where people who are named PT Alessandro talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. And with him, we used to talk about politics. I talked to a doctor in Australia and. Perth, and he's a trauma surgeon who never patched a bullet wound in his life uh, because he's in Australia and doesn't have to deal with a lot of people getting shot. Uh, so we thought that was really interesting. So that PT Alessandro and I had a whole conversation about the medical differences between America and Canada and Australia. So that's the PT Alessandro show. Very few episodes of that around because it's really hard to lock down people named PT Alessandro. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate that. I really um, love my favorite part was the actual metaphor, the analogy of working out and writing, because I believe any kind of craft, if you will, any kind of pursuit in anything is really habit forming, that if you want to uh, do anything, you have to make a system for yourself. And I think writing is one of those things that relates to a lot of habits. I have them as well. All right. So where can you find Pete? Well, that's a good question. You can find him on his own podcast, which is called Right On by Final Draft. Yes, just Right On, W-R-I-T-E, not the other one, On by Final Draft. As well as you can find his other podcast, The Pete D'Alessandro Show. Uh, there's not that many episodes, but you might get a little useful nugget every other word or so on that one, just you know, depending on what you fancy. Also, of course, uh, buy his product. Go to Final Draft. Go to any kind of store that sells Final Draft. Go to the App Store and get the Final Draft app. Well, anyway, my name is Monis Rose, and you can find all of our additional episodes on our iTunes page, Restaurant Fiction, and our website, restaurantfiction.com. And remember, guys, as always, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. 
Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. Hi, it's Jamie. Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.